Hi, Rick and friends. Hey, listen, uh, here's an interesting little sidebar to this little podcast here. Um, and hey, thanks for listening. The subject and I have been chatting for uh, 10 minutes spiritedly about various things. So I'm excited about today because this, this is the part we're going to record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to the big show. Our regular contributor, a uh, good friend of mine, Carrie Rempel. Welcome to the big show. Thanks, Rick. So uh, you and I, um, I, I would say we have a shorter history, but it feels like I've known you for a really long time. Yeah, I agree, actually. Yeah. 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 Like it feels like, um, I don't know, I'm going to say a couple of years, but anyway, long story short, uh, former chair of the faculty of business mm -hmm. at Okanagan College. Now you're pursuing this, this crazy thing called PhDs and mm -hmm. stuff. Yep. Yeah. Why would you... <laughs> I, I ask you this a lot, and that's because I'm not, I'm not thinking at all of of pursuing anything other than what I have. Mm -hmm. But, but you're pursuing a PhD now. Where does that hunger come from? Because it has to come from somewhere where you want to achieve this this mark. I would say. Mm, I think achievement's not the right word. Uh, so for me, knowledge and keeping my brain active and seeking out new ideas and challenging myself to. Uh, think about things in ways that I, I haven't wanted to or needed to before. That's really the point. The PhD, it's helpful. Does it get me more pay? No. More prestige at work? Absolutely not. Do the students care? I don't think one iota. Um, it has some advantages if I were looking to try to get federal grants, but um, that pursuit of the PhD, what it's given me is more confidence in my ability to go out and, and do impactful research and report out. And it's sort of, it's giving me, really in my career, it's it's an external validation that I, I know what the hell I'm doing, really. So is, is there's, a, there's a master's and, and there's a PhD. It, are yep. they separate or yep. do you need a master's to pursue the PhD? I don't know this. Uh, it depends on the school you go to and it okay. depends on the program that you're going to. So yes, I did need a master's to get in, but I wouldn't have been the typical master's student. So my master's was in business and uh, was a course-based master's. So I didn't do any research in my undergrad or my uh, master's degree. So hitting the PhD world was, you know, like that's a jolt of cold water onto the old system. I had to learn a lot really quickly. Yeah. And and is it involve, it must involve a ton of research, ton of reading, and mm -hmm. a lot of writing, I would assume. Yeah. And most of all, like a big old slap to the ego, I think is the biggest piece that comes with that. You, you especially as a late stage um, PhD student, I'm there with people half my age. Um, we had one class where uh, half the class was under 30 and the other half, half of the class was over 40. Like, so you, uh, uh, I think what's, what's neat about that, that sort of, um, journey is that you can come into it at any stage in your life, but you have different things to bring. So what I lacked in, in technical research skill, I gained in terms of world perspective, context of what we were using, the ability to connect the pieces together. Uh, you, you bring all of that with you. Uh, to the program. So wh where are you at in this journey? And, and when could you potentially get this designation? Mm. <laughs> All the gods willing, uh, I finished this year. So oh. I'm hoping to submit my thesis for defense in the fall, and then hoping to have um, hoping to be successful in that venture, do all the revisions and then submit by the as close to the end of the year as I can. 
And what is your thesis about? Can I can I ask? Mm-hmm. Sure. I am looking at the field of homelessness, and I'm doing a case study here in Kelowna. So, um, trying to conceptualize what a model looks like when you have a a field which is it, it's like systems on steroids, multiple systems together. Um, especially looking around a social issue like homelessness, how do you conceptualize what that field looks like? What are the inputs? What are the in, uh, the factors that affect that? What kinds of things would you um, have to take into account. And then hopefully what that does is it helps us when we're thinking about policy design. So if we're trying to impact something like homelessness, uh, maybe that gives us some insight into um, some of the connections that we might have to make at a policy level um, to really influence the social issue. If nothing else, I think it's a, a good exercise for a community to go through, to look at and, um, and sit back and look at who actually touches some of these social issues? Who could we be involving as stakeholders? Who aren't we involving? Who are we over-involving? There's lots of questions that you can ask. So uh, I want to go back probably about, I want to even say five, six years ago. I was uh, chatting with Scott Lanigan, mm-hmm. uh, chair of Journey Home. And uh, and, and him and I, and, and again, just in different parts of the community, homelessness comes up. Mm-hmm. And I would say six years ago, when I kept hearing, oh, it's a very complicated issue, it's very complex, and and to me, into my brain, I was like, well, I really want to delve deep into this mm-hmm. subject because I really, truly, I, I really it was a neophyte. I, I had no idea who who the factors were, what was really causing it, and, and, and it really, I just wanted to dive in through conversation. So we started the podcast about homelessness, and, you know, we talked to all these different stakeholders. And I can honestly say, after all these years of of research and thought and conversation and observing and listening, I don't know if I'm that much further ahead. Mm -hmm. Like it feels like you, for me anyway, you almost become burdened by the information. Mm -hmm. It because Mm -hmm. there's so many factors, and and is is that what's happening through your research? Like is it? I I don't want to say paralyzing, but does it, I don't know, like, it just feels like the more you get into it, the harder it seems. Well, it's a wicked problem for a reason. If it were easy to solve, we'd have already solved it. Um, and one of the, the most difficult things about social issues like homelessness is that there's not a single contributing factor. There's multiple contributing factors, and they're often layered upon layer. And the way that our systems are set up... Uh, either provincially or federally or locally, is that we try to tackle things in silos because we often think of if someone's having a healthcare challenge, well, then the healthcare system will take care of it. If they're having a mental health challenge, then the mental health system will take care of them. Um, or if it's, uh, you know, there's an issue with education or their ability to be employed, that we have other systems to take care of, of people. But uh, I don't know about you, but I tend to have more than one thing going on at a time. And so that's often what's difficult for the way that we've set things up for convenience, so siloing our, our, our structures, doesn't necessarily address an individual's needs. So if I'm able to access help in one arena, but I'm not accessing health help with uh, mental health supports, then it doesn't matter how much good that one area is doing, uh, I've got another area that's impacting us. So it's, it's that holistic look at an individual and recognizing that we are whole and complex people 
um, that is challenging for our uh, the way that our system is built. Um, and I think it's not about trying to go and redesign all of our systems. It's about understanding where our systems let us down. So where are those breakages? And how can we create more intentional connectivity between them? Um, and so I think as we've moved towards kind of industrializing our social system, making it efficient and effective and very purposeful and niched and measured out the wazoo, what we've forgotten is that it's supposed to serve people. And the last time I checked, people don't fit into boxes very easily. Um, we're not box shaped. So that means that if we're creating systems and solutions that are check box, box based um, or that have to fit specific parameters, we're likely missing a whole um, continuum of people that don't fit into those programming uh, uh, boundaries very well. Um, but, but, but by saying that, and I understand the concept, but we need, and, and this is just purely from a, and again, a business standpoint, I suppose you could say, unless you systemize it, unless you process drive it for, a, let's say, in government, well, then that's when there's inherent risks associated with that because if there isn't a, a system or, or any kind of flow that can be replicated, that's where you would have fall down, wouldn't you? Oh, so I love that you brought up replication. So does what works in Vancouver work in Kelowna? No. Does what work in Kelowna, what works in Kelowna work in Prince George? Mm, no. No. But there would be there some would be patterns that pieces exist. pieces that are contexts or constructs that we can utilize in each community. But <clears throat> I think where our challenges lie is that when we assume that what works in the lower mainland works in the interior, we run into to challenges. So if... Um, You've got a particular department that is uh, creating a program that works really well in spaces and places where you have access to a lot of transit and you've got uh, communities of people working together and there's lots of different supports contained within an area. That looks very different than in a smaller community like a Penticton or a Vernon where you have less access to transportation, not all of the same supports are available, the niche groups that can take care of individuals with sort of um, uh, different needs won't necessarily be there uh, and so when we think about programs we we often construct programs and we say oh they work in this one place so they must be able to work in other places uh, and that's true elements of them will work but if our systems don't allow for modification or for change or for adaptation for the communities in which they're being implemented then we're going to run into problems because they're not context specific so they don't match our needs and that's what I see with a lot of it, and, you know, I'm, I'm not in the service industry, uh, social service industry, so all I see are the things that I'm allowed in and exposed to. But if we don't have adaptable kinds of programming from our federal and, and uh, provincial governments, um, then we run, run the risk of, of uh, not actually being able to address the, the, the problems in the way that we need to in our community. So if the metrics are exactly the same for everybody, um, if how it has to be implemented looks exactly the same, you have to have this many people per this many people in this kind of a construct. That may not work in certain communities. That's difficult for provinces and for federal governments because they want the numbers to roll up neatly so that they can report back to us that they're doing a good job with their money. But that's the, and, and this would be part of the problem, is when I ask the federal government or the provincial government, and, and really any government, 
to be adaptable right, and innovate and initiate. <laughs> I mean, those are all words that mm-hmm. don't flow with government. Like, I mean, they, they, they truly... Don't? I'm shocked. They, they cannot tweak, pivot anytime, anywhere. Like, I mean, it's just asking a lot of them. So I'm, I'm wondering, is your, is your thought process a hybrid model of these stakeholders, agencies, wraparound services in these communities that are the pivot point and the government just goes, here's money. Mm-hmm. Um, you go do you and, and report back on how that went. Like, there that- are some provinces that are doing that in certain instances, though. So the Alberta government has in the past had more of a, here's the dollars you're allocated uh, to specific communities, figure out what works. Or I'm working with a community in the Okanagan, and um, they have access to a federal grant. Um, they could use a very traditional approach. The government will support a very traditional approach of giving out those funds but instead, they're choosing to create their own model whereby they're going out to the community, asking the community where are the best places for this, and creating a community-supported approach to determining who's getting the funds for what projects and how much. I mean, there, there are parameters around that, but it's, a, it's, it's still working within a, a construct from a, a federal government, but saying, we're going to apply it a different way, and that's what's going to work for our community. At least I hope it works for their community. So, so that brings up the, the point of, so if the government gives you money and they want, they want it to be earmarked for something, they mm-hmm. want measurements around mm-hmm. that. Otherwise, I don't know, they get, they get obviously criticized for giving away money willy-nilly. Yeah. So, but on the second hand, those agencies that can best utilize it and, and really create a path forward with accountability... But then it's almost like the left hand doesn't know how to talk to the right hand, which is in this case where the government's giving you money, but they want it in a traditional manner. They want it to be delivered in a traditional manner because that's what they understand. They're probably dealing with data that's three, four years old. But the agency's going, no, there's a new, relatively new approach to this that we think will have far more impact, more relevancy with this population. And the government goes, well, I don't care. This is the way we report, so I cannot give you that money. And I don't think that's necessarily what happens in every instance. So I don't think that um, in every case is the government saying, I need these three metrics from you. They're needing uh, instead, I think, what they're asking. And again, I'm not a municipal agent, but my understanding is instead, uh, often the approach is, tell us what, uh, what metrics make most sense to your community, um, but some of the challenges with it. So that 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 great that works great, but if we don't give enough time to communities to be able to actually understand what their metrics should be or could be, if we have three month funding horizons, if we give people too limited a time frame to do that relationship building, that context setting, the actual determination, then we've just thrown our money away anyway. No matter who is going to be, uh, which which process you're using, because you either leave people not enough room so we have to do whatever with status quo. Um, th- these things take time. We're talking about changing whole systems and approaches. That doesn't happen in the span of a one-year funding horizon. So let's go back to uh, Journey Home, which recently, I think it was in, I want to say December or January council meeting, mm-hmm. uh, there was money earmarked from the federal government for Journey Home. Yes. The council said, we're going to defer this. We're just going to table this. Even though the money 
was earmarked. Like, in other words, it has to go through yes, the municipality. Through reaching home, yeah. And, so and, it was already, yes, so already it, assigned. But the, the council was saying in, in by their vote and by deferring it, no, no, we're going to wait to give you this money because we want to talk about this and, and really table it, which they're allowed to do. But in, in retrospect, like the money was earmarked. Like it, it's not going anywhere else but to journey home. But the council was saying because they have a new mayor, new council members mm-hmm. who maybe were just trying to send a, a signal to journey home saying we're not happy with the progress. We don't think we're winning. So this is just a way for us to give you our sense of things, which is things are not happening quick enough. Mm-hmm. Is that the sense you, and again, I, I, you know, me, I'm just starting a fire here, but, right. but, but honestly, doesn't that, isn't that what you felt was a result of that? Yes. I would offer that, um, a more constructive approach to that would have been to just talk to Whoa. journey home. I, you know, I'm, I'm not involved in either, so I have no stake in this, but I think posturing is never a good way to start out a new relationship between any entities. And if, if there really is concern about how things are moving forward, then doesn't a conversation to talk about, hey, this is kind of where I thought we were going, but this is where it looks like we're going. Am I understanding that properly? What pieces am I missing? Is there something that you don't have or is there a disconnect on on the other end? And do we need to restart that conversation? It's been several years since we've had community conversations related to what's happening with Journey Home, what's the city's position, what else has changed? We've had COVID during that time. We've had a lot of change in the opioid scenario. We've seen an expansion in our outdoor sheltering spaces, changes there. It's maybe time for a conversation. I worry about what kind of, what that positioning does though. It sets up an adversarial relationship from the same from the start and I don't know why it needs to be adversarial aren't they all trying to achieve something that betters the community as a whole so functional zero I think is the goal but one of the things that comes out of that conversation is you're absolutely right like let's have a conversation let's find out where the gaps might might exist between our plan and perhaps your ideas or your plan but I I find it remarkable like it would make me sad if an organization, and I know a bit of the history, and admittedly, right. Scott Lanigan's a friend of mine, but it seems to me like we've done all this work, and to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I don't know makes the most sense because it's there's also been so much. If there's no replacement, but but that's just it. They're they're the quarterback, so ostensibly they would have some experience. They would know mm-hmm. who the stakeholders are. Mm-hmm. They know who the players are, and now if you were to just go no, we're going to have a new leadership team. We're going to have a new quarterback. And I, I don't know. I, I just worry that in 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 a it way. It would be a very traditional business way of approaching that, though. It Is would that be. how we do? We replace the CEO. We, we replace the leadership team. And then we, so, but it doesn't, it doesn't, that's not very effective in the context of what we're talking about here because there's so much contextual knowledge that's embedded with the people that are involved. So, you know, that would be my wish to city council is that, um, to do their homework on what has been the city's stance, which is to be removed from that process. So if you're now signaling that you want to be engaged, then there's a whole lot of other things that need to kick into gear. Um, and what responsibilities come with that signaling on the part of the city too. So, uh, and political leaders don't always connect in with their city 
um, counterparts before we say things. So, or before we do things. So I think that that was a I read that as a surprise all around. It certainly was a surprise to me. And it gave me uh, heart palpitations because I just, what worried me is that it's not the change and it's not to say that we don't need to signal change, but it was, there are so many people's lives hanging in the balance of, of much of the work that's being done in our community. And when you signal such a structural change like that, do we understand what the impacts are on the people that we're currently serving? Mm-hmm. Um, once you start stripping away things or signaling that money now where people have been building programming, if that money now, if you can take it away from Journey Home, which they can't, if you can take it away from Journey Home or you have to do something else mm-hmm. like with it, um, then who else is at risk? And so you, you start to create a, a sense of distrust, of turmoil. Um, and, and I'm not, again, not that change is bad, but you got to think through that stuff when you're dealing with people's lives. We're not talking about widgets here. We're talking about people. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just the people on the street, but the people that work with all those people, the businesses that are impacted in nearby places. Um, you know, it's a, it's a much, uh, much nuanced conversation that you want to have take place. And I'm sure many people were happy with a, with a signal. Um, I would just be happier with a conversation to start. So you're doing this research on homelessness. It's- well, the field. The it's field. the field. Okay. I'm not an, a homelessness expert by any stretch. Well, pretty darn close. Mm, Come on. Many people would argue with you there, Rick. <laughs> but that being said, so if, if you were, I, I'm just curious to know, and again, you can say, listen, I don't know about that and I want to comment on that, but I'll still press you on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but where, where would Journey Home be, you know, as far as, uh, let's talk about the journey. Like they've... They went from that incubation phase to mm-hmm. we need this we need this position of leadership within our community to make sure that all levels, all different wraparound services, all agencies, all stakeholders know what each other's doing. Mm-hmm. So let's do a bunch of research around who is homeless and who is in danger of becoming homeless. I think they've done a bit of research yeah. around that. I think they have. And because I've I've heard a long time ago from a management conference that if you can't manage it or you can't measure it you can't manage it so i think their their first thing priority would be let's figure out who is here who they look like share that data and then start administering hopefully some sort of support some sort of ideas around this i think that's would that be what what you would subscribe if 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 you were in a chair saying here's where we need to go is is that does that make sense to you? I think that's a systemic response. I am unclear as to who's taking leadership in terms of doing some of that. So um, I don't know if that was Journey Homes, the the Central Okanagan Journey Home Society's job. I know that that's what the strategy is asking us to take action on. So we have a number of coordinated tables. We have provincial influence in a number of different aspects provincial programs and another um, and a variety of aspects that are happening within the community. We've got community-led kinds of tables and coalitions that are pulling together. COVID changed a lot of things in Kelowna. It both broke us and healed us in some different ways. So uh, what I was able to observe from the outside, and that's easy easier for me to do because I'm not a service provider. So I get a chance to kind of look at things from outside, um, outside yet inside. Uh, 
And what I did see was uh, collaboration and support for organizations, the like of which I usually only see in small communities. And that was amazing. And I was so hopeful that some of that will continue to happen. But as we, as we go back to our old ways, I see some evidence of resiloing. I see um, that I'm, I'm not sure who's tasked with bringing all of the pieces together. And that could be Journey Home, and it could just be my ignorance as to how, uh, how things are progressing, because I'm not at a table, decision-making table, every day. So I, I know there is coordination happening, but uh, I don't, uh, yeah, COVID really did throw a wrench into some of the momentum that happened because you shifted and moved from looking at fixing the systems to addressing that core need and and helping people that needed support in that moment during a crisis. Don't forget we had COVID and then we had wildfires and we had, you know, floods and we had like all, you know. Pestilence, yes, famine. Yes. Yeah, there is. Yeah. All of that. <laughs> all at once. So, you know, there was lots of factors in there. So the time for community conversation, again, like almost like a restart. I think is definitely um, something that I personally am feeling like it's it's time to get re-energized around what is it that we're trying to do. Um, I would hope that uh, Journey Home is one of those vehicles by which we can have those community conversations. Like a town hall meeting? Is that what you're thinking? We're just, I don't know. Like that's, that's certainly a start. There's lots of ways to begin to have those conversations. I um, Town halls could be one of them. I, Aren't they just screaming matches, though? Well, that's what I worry it it sort of devolves into. But um, opportunities for people to come together and talk in civil manners about what the real challenges are. I know that there are challenges for the businesses out there. And I know there are challenges for the service providers. And I know the individuals that are experiencing um, housing uh, insecurity, not just homelessness, but housing insecurity, there are challenges there for them, too. But where do we talk about this as a... As a cluster, so how do you? For me, if I can't talk about it with people, how do we? How do solutions evolve? But that's where I'm. I'm most curious because uh, you and I, Marshall Smith, in in mm-hmm. Alberta, which apparently you don't agree with everything he does and says. Maybe not. And maybe not. Which is why I love that. But um, but it seems to me, and again, I'm just purely going off of media reports, and they're they're rather kind. Uh, here's an an ex-user who goes mm-hmm. into a position of prominence, he starts to lay out this this architecture for how do we address homelessness. Um, he's not an, an... It's really just addictions he's addressing, isn't it? But I... So I, he's, he's conflict... Well, so he's saying that, in essence, by saying that... So I think what he's getting at is that addictions get managed when you're abstinent and you are you have access to recovery services. And and he's not a big fan of safe supply. No, no. 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 But where I I struggle is to see how all of that correlates to homelessness. Because last I checked, not everybody who used a substance or who was addicted to something, alcohol, tobacco, (laughs) like addictions is a big, big thing. And not all of us result, and not all of us who have... Uh, addictions to caffeine, which I may may or may not have an oh, addiction I'm... to, um, end up unhoused. Mm-hmm. Or so I'm a little bit concerned if we are thinking that his addictions um, stances are going to solve a homelessness problem because those you shouldn't put those two things together at all. No, you you shouldn't. I see where your point is. 
my struggle with this whole thing is is going going back to um, in BC anyway, mm-hmm. where basically Doctor Bonnie Henry has said like if you're if you're using on the street and you've been homeless for you know a period of time, you're almost unsalvageable. And and again, I, I'm putting words in her mouth. I don't want to quote that, <laughs> no, but yeah, but I, I want to say, say yes. that she was she was basically saying if you're in in this addiction phase, you know we don't have a lot of support for that. We don't have other than safe supply, like making sure that whatever if you are yes. using, you know, yep. you can use some good stuff. But it almost seems like there's a a hopelessness uh, from from that office to say, listen, there's just there's a certain portion of the population we can help. There's another portion we can help. Our only solution is safe supply and, and basically writing them off, so to speak. Well, um, so some of the, uh, I've loved every moment of the interviews I've been doing with my PhD work. And one of the things that's coming out repeatedly from individuals is looking at the system from, or looking at this field, at how we address homelessness. Um, not just as uh, housing only, but considering what is the upstream and the downstream from just addressing the band-aids that are fixing the people that are are currently living unhoused, right? So upstream means where do we start to look at those mitigating factors that stop people from a downward slide? And uh, downstream for me, in my words, is how are we supporting people once they are back rehoused or once they have stable housing or their financial situation has changed so that they're stable. How are we supporting them post-intervention, I guess, if there's an intervention? Um, And so if we spend all of our time and all of our energy, and if our only ways to address homelessness are rooted in uh, um, just addressing the the people that are on the street, we're not going to stop that downward slide and we're not gonna protect people from re-entering the same scenario. We're not supporting them to do that. So we need to be putting as much effort into providing um, the supports that keep people stable and um, and support them from, from uh, moving down that trajectory and to keep them housed rather than putting all of our money. Like right now, I don't know what option you have if you're looking specifically at the opioid crisis other than to to mitigate because we don't have enough access to treatment beds. So treatment is certainly part of that, but it's not going to be everybody's, uh, not everybody is going to be able to or willing to go into treatment right away. Um, So if you can't access, and we also don't have very much access to some of the, um, the opioid agonist um, uh, treatments. So methadone, uh, and, and programs like that are, can only be accessed in certain spaces and only for a few people. So we, we like some of these things that we know will help people to move to, um, th- those happen to be harm reductions, uh, to move to a point where they can get um, clean and sober if that's what they're wanting to. We don't have access to some of those things. So okay, we- so I have a question for you, which, because... At, at times we, we we speak in theory, and I just want to go down to a, the almighty dollar. Mm-hmm. Okay, you ready? This okay. is going to be a fun exercise. Okay. And then we'll take a quick break. Um, we have one dollar. I'm giving it to you, Carrie okay. Rempel. So knowing what you know about, and again, this is your own personal ideas and oh, thoughts God. and research. Okay. Yep. okay. I'm giving you one dollar. 
And you have to split up that $1 between harm reduction, uh, safe supply, housing, and wraparound services. Mm -hmm. How would you allocate that dollar? Uh, the first thing I would say is that that allocation would probably change over time. Okay. Whoa. No, you, you can't just give me $1. So it's going to be, I'm talking about operational budget versus capital budget now. Sure. Okay. So sure. I, I want a $1 capital budget and I want a $1 operational budget. Okay. Okay, good. Okay. Now I got $2. See you, how that works? I just got $2 out of here. You're killing me here. I, I work with the nonprofit sector. I'm going to morph that into no, three before we're you're done. you're academic. That's what you are. No, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, see, I just made a dollar. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think, you know, part of that is that you have to look at what, what is it you're trying to achieve at this point in time? Functional so zero. You want me to achieve functional zero on a dollar? No, no, I'm just saying well, metaphorical. I'm, I'm poking your buttons now. Um, I think if you're trying to achieve functional zero, there's two pieces to that. One is you have to address what it is that you're facing right now. And one is you have to stop the bleeding, right? So Agreed. you have to invest. So mm -hmm. some of that has to be investment. That's why I want the capital investment. Sure. You've got to be able to build up your capacity to be able to address um some of the challenges that, that people are facing. Mm -hmm. And and if we stop people from sliding into homelessness, that costs us less. Or it costs us less in health interventions or everything. Mitigation, suppression. Yeah. I, and then I agree. You, you also have to alleviate the immediate suffering. Okay. I, I personally believe I, I have a role or have to play some part in alleviating that suffering. But here's the thing. If I've got a dollar. There's a finite amount of money. Mm -hmm. So I... I too. Is there a finite amount no, of there, money? There getting is. to yes. Have you read getting to yes? <laughs> there is the a pie can be bigger. I'm just saying metaphorically mm -hmm. that we only have a certain amount of money. So unfortunately, with that being said, some people are going to be left behind. Yes. Okay. People are gonna choose too, right? Okay, like, so one dollar and one dollar. So I'm gonna split oh, okay. Well I'm gonna put one dollar towards mitigating currently. Okay. What's going on and one dollar towards um, th that building that capacity okay, within so what, the community. But and then what, over time I'm gonna switch those dollars. Sure. So I'm gonna have still one on mitigating. Okay, what is that? And then that, what does that, that mean? other dollar I'm gonna split fifty fifty. But what is that out of that mitigating the the first part, how much of that is spent towards housing? How much is spent towards uh, rehabilitation? Well see this is where I have a challenge with your one dollar analogy. <laughs> Because it's never $1, Rick. Like, it's never $1. Interventions in other parts of our society mm -hmm. are going to create spillover benefits that are going to contribute to that goal that I have. So if Kelowna wants to be a strong community, we can't do that without housing. Having more housing helps everybody no matter where you are on a continuing Agreed. journey in your life, right? Agreed. So if you can spend a dollar over there, so now I've got you $3. <laughs> you see how this works? Well, the thing it's is, not that simple. It's not black and white. You're trying to make a complex problem and a, and a complex solution as simple as it's $1. And you know from your own budget that's not it. You find a coupon. You find a whatever. You found a deal with someone. You partner up with someone. It becomes half price. Like, we never have just $1. Really? Really. Oh, no. We're fighting. Okay. so uh, <laughs> That's fighting. Okay. <laughs> uh, back in a moment with more Carrie Rempel. This is a lot of fun. I'm having fun. Um, let's talk about our sponsors, D6 Print Studio. <gasps> what does D6 stand for? 
every time it changes, it's damn good six times over. Uh, they have large format printers. They can wrap vehicles. They can put signs on buildings. They can do anything. Uh, talk to them, D6 Print Studios. We also have ColonaNow.com. Go on there, news anytime, 24 hours a day. It's all there on ColonaNow.com. And they also have a pretty good podcast, too. And the third is uh, good friends over at Pereira. They have Takori Jewelry, handcrafted in California. Beautiful jewelry, sparkly stuff. Carrie, really, I, I'm just saying, Pereira, let's have a look. Valentine's Day is coming up. Uh, Pereira.com. Back in a moment with more Carrie Rempel. Okay, so uh, thanks for listening to this because uh, Carrie and I are, well, we're fighting. No, we're not fighting. We never fight. We, we just have these spirited discussions about things. I'm trying to get her to stick to a budget. She's saying there's no such thing as budgets. So. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that is not what I said. What I said is it's not as simple. It's never just one dollar. I'm trying to make it simple for the listeners. But the listeners are not idiots. No, they're so not. So that they know that it's not simply a dollar. Okay. So what is it? Uh, so what is it if it's not a dollar? <laughs> what? But I'm saying is... Because go- you're, you've moved it down to all of the interactions and all of the interventions and all the things that we do can be monetized to a dollar value. Mm-hmm. And so, but that's simply not true because uh, there are lots of things where you spend 50 cents on something because I had needed to put a dollar value onto it. um, And it's going to have spin-off effects for multiple, uh, multiple things. When I give my kid a popsicle, for example, it makes them happy in that moment. It ups their sugar level. So we're going to finally make the bike ride home. It uh, helps somebody else's business to run. It cools down my kids so their health is better in the heat of the summer. So, you know, it's not ever just one thing that one action takes. And agreed, like for instance, Parkinson Rec Center. There's yes. a lot of talk about $160 million. Oh, that's a lot of money. It is. Ron came on the show and said, listen, don't think of it like a one-time expense. Think of it as healthcare. Like it think is. of it as is proactive healthcare, mm-hmm. and and when he framed that for me, I think differently about that expenditure for sure. Here's where I'm going with all this. Yes, we have governments that sit down and they create budgets, mm-hmm. and they go, "We're going to spend this much on roads, this much on sewers, this much on amenities, and we're going to spend this much on fighting homelessness." So now there's agencies that raise money, United Way, there's there's various Canadian mental health. There's lots of different mm-hmm. money. I get all that. What I'm saying is, though, is everything has perhaps a cap, a budget. But you're, I think you're fighting the wrong thing. Why are we fighting homelessness? Why are we not addressing uh, dealing with people's mental health challenges? Why aren't we? If we've got these systems set up, uh, our healthcare system, fixing our healthcare system, and providing people care so that they're not being prescribed copious amounts of opioids and then not given a proper treatment plan to get them off those, uh, where we're labeling people as drug seeking when they maybe aren't. Um, we we have uh, some of these systems in place. If they were functioning well and they were supporting people, I don't think we'd see the numbers of people that are um, having the resultant uh, downslide into a space where they're not living the life that we would hope that they could live. Do you agree with safe supply? Uh, Yeah, I do. Because who am I to judge? Do I consume alcohol? Apparently, I shouldn't be consuming more than two drinks a week. I will be honest, some weeks it's more than two. Oh, well, yeah. So so I'm going against 
you know, counter to health measures. Who am I to, to make choices for people about what they consume, why they consume, how they consume? It's not necessarily my job. Um, my business, I guess, is, is, is more to the point. Um, but when I look at people that are suffering, uh, whatever they're, if we're looking at addictions, for example, whatever your addiction is, um, I think you need to have some choice about how you address that and have some personal responsibility. And if safe supply is one of those ways that you can get yourself to the point where you can function on a day-to-day basis and now you can go get treatment, then that's important. If it mitigates the number of times that you're going to overdose on your journey to wherever that next step is, then that's a good thing. If it reduces infections, cross-infections like HIV, um, other sort of needle-borne illnesses from sharing needles, then that's a good thing. Like, I, I think harm reduction uh, does help, but it's, it, it's a mitigating factor, right? It's still not addressing what the root causes no. are. So no, it's it isn't. one tool in our toolbox. So so different thoughts I have about safe supply that that bother me, I guess you could say is I agree with, you know, the very word safe supply means something to me as a human. Mm-hmm. Like the mere fact that it's it's clean, they know it's not, you know, spiked with fentanyl. Yeah. Like, I mean, all those things make me as a human happy with safe supply. The part I don't agree with is the fact that I do fundamentally believe somebody is profiting from safe supply and it's not government. I do believe that there's a manufacturer going, this is part of their profit and and that part drives me insane that somebody could profit from this and 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 perhaps special interest groups would continue with the narrative of safe supply is the only answer to keep these people safe that's just an idea thought if you assume that that's the only answer which i yeah i don't think either of us is saying but the other part is I do think that if we're doing the safe supply route, there doesn't seem to be any contingency plan or any kind of plan uh, associated with, if we give you this, we're not just giving you a pamphlet. Like we're going to give you some dissuasion methods Mm -hmm. for going forward. So if I give you this, I don't even know, whatever it is. And then on top of that, as part of that, you will get there will be a plan in place for how you could potentially seek out treatment. Like that part, I'm not sure about. Well, the only things, like, let me give you maybe a different example. So if we are then saying your your access to safe supply is contingent upon doing something else, let's say that the addiction is caffeine, Rick, and we need to get you off the caffeine. So we're going to give you this diluted caffeine alternative or this non-caffeinated alternative that that you can get access to but only if you do these certain steps how are you going to feel about that um i probably feel like i don't know if i've chosen this i don't know if it's it's my in my interest to do so Mm -hmm. like i don't know if i've if i want this so i don't know if i would be wholly invested in this program so i think that it's you know when we bring that home to the personal level we take an example that resonates with us whether or not so it's okay for them it's okay for those people to have choices forced upon them but it's it would be different if those choices were forced upon me so let's think about the mask issues that we've seen in Canada recently it's a mask it's just something that goes across your face it's protecting others it's protecting yourself unless you don't believe the science and I can't help you then um but look at the uproar that we had in our communities around being asked to do something so simple and basic. 
And I understand people have health concerns around that and they're maybe have health implications that everybody, there's always going to be people that are going to not be able to follow some of those requirements. But we couldn't even get people to do that, Rick. So as soon as, as they felt constrained, that there was these restrictions that impinged on their personal rights, um, then there was an uproar. But it's okay for those people. It's okay for those people that are using drugs because they're bad. And, and what we fail to recognize is that when we're looking at addictions, not everybody who's on the street, like you can't, we, I, I don't want us to keep conflating homelessness and addictions together because there are lots of other people out there that are, are um, needing access to safe supply. If we keep saying that safe supply is only for people that are on the streets or people that are homeless, then we may have other people that have no route into using safe supply that will give them a route that gives them access to pamphlets and people who are going to educate them. Um, it's this othering that I worry about sometimes. So it doesn't work on my kids either. If I say, you can, you know, I'll let you have this, but only if you do these things. They may grudgingly do it the first time. And they may grudgingly do it the second time, but eventually that's not going to work in terms of incentives. They have to want to do those things that I'm asking them to do to have them do that on a consistent basis. I, I, I'm with you for the most part. It's just that with the whole drug supply, and again, I, broad strokes, there's a certain connection between uh, opioid addiction, property crime, assault, and various other things mm-hmm. that society has said, we don't like that. So... So as a as a, a mechanism to to hopefully thwart that, we are saying there is actually going to be a plan in place for you with this addiction. Then we also need to have one in place for every alcoholic, um, for everybody who uses alcohol and then drives their vehicle. We need to have that for everybody who consumes cannabis and then drives high and creates accidents. We don't want those things too, but you we don't have any mechanism in place that is forcing those people that are overusing those substances to go through a treatment plan. So why do, why are we picking on just, and you can't tell me that there's not a connection um, to, uh, to, to crimes that are happening from the use of those substances too. So it's just my concern around who is, who is getting the brunt of this. And, and I'm very sorry that we have those connections between addiction and, and, um, a crime that people are using for you know, subsistence crime. Um, there's more to that too. Like, why aren't we picking on organized crime? Like, why don't we, why don't we go after that? Because there's a root cause of a whole, oh, I was going to say a bad word, a whole lot of evil or just bad things mm-hmm. that happen in our society from organized crime. And where do we think that the drug supply comes from? And where do like, but we're not picking on that. Mm-hmm. So we're, we continue to focus on those that are the most marginalized in our community because they're visible, uh, because they're there in our face, because we're being asked to do something about it, because it, we can see it and touch it, uh, and, and feel it in our communities and it, and it hurts us. And so we react in different ways, but it's, it's one of, I'm interested in why we're picking on this one in particular and mm-hmm. not some of those others too. Listen, you got to get going. I, I... I don't know. I got to do something. But uh, this has been a hoot. Thank you. Is this a hoot? This is a hoot. A veritable hoot. I did I did enjoy the sparring back and forth. That was fun. It was yeah. good. I, yeah. I, I, I just rarely get to spar with PhD people, you know. 
Um, listen, I, I so enjoy you having on the program. That's why you're a regular contributor, okay? Because we have these little back and forth, and I love it. Carrie Rempel, everyone, and uh, thank you again for listening. I appreciate uh, Carrie spending the time uh, busy away from her studies, and hopefully we can steal her once more time, maybe twice.